you turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Can't wait to worship together in the Word. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 in a moment. Galatians 5, 13 through 16. This morning we're going to focus in on a particular spiritual discipline. The spiritual disciplines, as I'm sure you know, are just biblical practices for spiritual growth. They're, they're things that the Bible commands us to do in order to grow in gospel grace and knowledge. So holy habits practiced by the people of God. And some of these are um, spiritual disciplines are, are inward, by which I mean they're personal. Um, disciplines like personal prayer and personal Bible reading, meditation on, on God's word. And those personal um, disciplines affect us inwardly as our lives are shaped by our fellowship with God so that they give birth to outward or interpersonal spiritual disciplines. And we're going to consider one of those interpersonal disciplines this morning, the discipline of serving. And by serving, I just mean our our serving of one another. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about serving as a spiritual discipline. Why am I categorizing serving as a spiritual discipline? Here's the simple answer. Because it takes discipline to serve. And serving can be hard work. Right? Ladies who served for the women's retreat know it's, it's hard work. That takes discipline. It's rigorous. It can take labor. And it, and it can be a labor that's very often outside our comfort zone. It can be a labor that very often makes us vulnerable. It's labor that almost always comes with a cost. It's labor that can seem unspectacular, though it's certainly not. It's a a labor sometimes that seems to accomplish nothing, though it accomplishes much. Serving can seem mundane and banal, though it is absolutely supernatural. So there isn't in us, dare I say most of us, a natural inclination to serve and just move towards people in their need. I mean, we, we, we have sinful, lazy, prideful hearts that often resist it, right? I know mine certainly does. But like we're going to see in our text, we are not left to our sinful hearts. The spirit of Jesus resides in every Christian in this room. And that spirit of Jesus is making us more like Jesus. And so we can resist that natural tendency away from serving and instead be enabled by grace to discipline ourselves to serve. And then we find serving to be a glorious means of growth in gospel grace. That's why serving is a spiritual discipline. Here's another reason I'm preaching on serving. I'm serving because it's a spiritual discipline and I'm preaching on it because there's a bigger theological reason. A sermon on serving is important because we were created for community. We were created for relationships. And serving is all about life in community. It's all about life in relationships. There can be no community. There can be no meaningful relationships apart from serving. We were created for community. More than that, we were saved. We were redeemed. We were set apart by God. We were made Christians for community. 
We were all, all of us, born or adopted into a family, and we were all born again into the church family. God saved you, and he put you in a church. He put you all in this church, Providence Community Church, and life together in community, which includes serving one another, is an expression of our very creation in the image of God. I mean, think about it. One of the things that sets Christianity apart, makes us unique among the world religions, is that our God is a triune God. One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that raises all kinds of questions. That requires that we get humble and get comfortable with mystery. But here's what we do know. For eternity there has been a holy community, a perfect community of love and communication and adoration and satisfaction. Our Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. If you've ever heard any of that Sunday school stuff, just call it like it is, Sunday school garbage about God creating you because he was lonely and he wanted company. We just need to strike that heretical, anti-Trinitarian, pagan thought from our minds. It's not true. How can it be true? Our perfect one God has existed for all eternity with his selves, loving and knowing one another. He needed nothing. He was not lonely. He created you and me out of love and in order to enjoy the community that he enjoys. When he saved us, that's what he invited us into, his holy community. And the community and relationships that we experience here on earth, and in particular in the church, are a reflection of that community. That's what this is. This is a reflection of God in community. And it's a foretaste of the day when we will be drawn up into that community forever and together. That day will be the reestablishing of the community that Adam and Eve once experienced with God and with one another. But they sinned. And what did they do immediately after they sinned? They ran from one another. And they hid and they cast blame. And relationships have been a nightmare ever since. Right? They're hard work. People are always getting hurt, always getting disappointed, always getting upset. And I'm talking about relationships inside the church. But we can't get along without them. I love the U2 lyric. I can't live... With or without you. That's the truth, right? I mean, it's a mess. Relationships are a mess, but they're a mess worth making because to pull back from relationships is to lose our humanity. It's to deny the image of God in us. So we need texts like this one to teach us and remind us how to live in community, in relationship with one another. We need this text to teach us about the spiritual discipline of serving. So let's read Galatians 5, 13 through 16. This is God's word to his church, God's word to this church. For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this particular word. Thank you for this book. This book and this particular text are, like Moses said, our very life. And by your word, we live and we flourish in this life when it's lived by your word. So we just pause right now and ask you, would you impress it on our minds and impress your word on our hearts? Give us alert minds now to understand and give us tender hearts to receive. We want to hear your voice speaking to us right now. And let the voice we hear, your voice, woo us to the goodness of life that you call us to, a life of serving one another. And so we humble ourselves now by, by, by placing our lives under the authority of your word. Holy Spirit, come, be our helper, and illumine your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the logic of this text is, is simple and pretty straightforward. Here it is. Paul restates the foundation of the Christian life, which is freedom. Then he gives a twofold command. The first is negative. Don't use your freedom for the flesh. And then the second is positive. Serve through love, which is the main command of the text. Then he gives two incentives for obeying that command. The first is positive. To do so is to fulfill the law. Then he gives a negative incentive which serves as a warning. If we don't serve in love, we will bite and devour and consume one another. So we're just going to walk through the text now. And I have some headings based on that structure that will help us as we go. So first heading, the foundation. Look at the first part of verse 13 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, that sentence sets our text in its wider context. And it actually summarizes Paul's main point for the first four and a half chapters of the book of Galatians. And it signifies a transition in the book of Galatians. As Paul turns from theology now to application. So four and a half chapters... He wrote of, of all about believing rightly in order that we may now live rightly. And that's always Paul's way in his letters. Because what we believe to be true about God, his works and his ways determines how we live. So we need to ask, freedom from what? Well, here's Paul's main point in the first four plus chapters of Galatians. We are free from the obligation to obey God's law in order to gain God's favor, to gain a right standing with Him. 
In other words, to get justified. That is, to be declared holy by God, like Matthew read from Colossians. We're we're free from that, which is really good news. It's gospel because we cannot, on our own, obey God's law perfectly. And that's what God requires. Perfect obedience to His law. And, And to try to obey perfectly on our own is hopeless. And so Paul is really serious about this legalism, this false doctrine that we get saved by law keeping. And he writes this entire letter to counter false teachers in Galatia who put forward a doctrine that requires works, requires obedience to the law in order to be saved, and so denies the precious doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works. And when I say Paul is serious about this, I mean he's serious. In Galatians 1.8, he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, that's the easy to swallow translation. That word accursed means be damned. So legalism is a damnable offense. Now, a whole lot more could be said about that. Paul wrote four and a half chapters about it, but that's beyond the scope of the sermon, except to make clear why Paul says what he says next. He gives a command now that serves as a qualification. So that's the next heading, the qualification. It's a qualification for what he's already said, and it's a very important qualification. The middle of verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul doesn't want to be misunderstood. He knows that what, he, what he's just finished saying, speaking about being free from the law, may lead some to think that what he means is that we are now free to determine our own standard of behavior. Free to do whatever we want to do, but we're not. Freedom is not about indulging the flesh. Now that term, the flesh, is used a lot by the biblical authors, and it means different things according to the context. And here Paul uses the term, the flesh, to refer to fallen human nature. It's sin and depravity apart from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's who we are without God. It's those places where sin still has a stronghold in our lives. And the flesh is the sworn enemy of relationships and community. Because the flesh is the self turned inward. It's the self-centered passions and the self-centered desires that wreak havoc on our relationships. The freedom that Paul revels in is not freedom from obedience to God's commands. That cannot possibly be what he means because there's commands in these verses. Obeying commands is the way that we keep the flesh in check. And Paul talks here about fulfilling the law. We're free from the obligation to obey the law in order to be saved by God, but we are not freed from the law as a way to please God as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we are, we are set free from the law for the law. Now, whew, that's heady stuff. 
But I stumbled on a quote by Charles Spurgeon in my study that I think will help us wrap our minds around our relationship to the law as Christians. In fact, I, I found this quote and I said out loud, where have you been all my life? What is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It's for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. The law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. Now, we have to be careful here, don't we? We walk a straight, narrow, hard path that leads to eternal life as Christians. And we can't lean one way and we can't lean the other way or we will veer off the path. And over here is the desert of legalism, right? striving to earn and merit God's favor. And it is lifeless, it is joyless, and it is barren. And over here is the jungle of license, ignoring commands and indulging the sinful flesh. And it has entangling branches. And once you're in, it's really hard to get out. So here's my paraphrase of the Apostle Paul's qualification. Obedience to God's commands is not legalism. It's not legalism. To call people to obedience is not legalism. This sermon is not a legalistic sermon. We have to even be careful how we use that term legalism. I've heard it used as a synonym for passion. Maybe you've never said it outright. I wonder if you've ever thought something like this. I mean, he is so legalistic about his Bible reading. She is so legalistic about her church attendance. Well, what do you mean? Are they trying to earn their standing before God by reading the Bible and going to church? Well, no, it's just they're so into it. They're just so into it and they don't let anything get in the way of it. They're just so focused on it. Oh, you mean they're passionate about it. You mean they're serious about obedience. Listen, being serious about obedience is what we were saved for. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's disobedience. And to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, obedience. It's how we express our love for Christ. Jesus himself in John 14, 15 said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's the qualification. We need that qualification because now we're ready for the main command. So that's the next heading, the command. Into verse 13. But through love, serve one another. Now remember, Paul introduced this by talking about freedom. So this is true freedom here. Through love, serve one another. This is the way we express our freedom. And it's a paradox. Because even more literally, we could translate the end of verse 13 like this. But through love, 
become slaves of one another. That's true freedom? Yes, that's true freedom. We're free from just serving our own interest. We're free from just serving ourselves, our desires, our lusts. Love does not insist on its own way, 1 Corinthians 13.5. We're free from the flesh and its exclusive self-interest, and so we're set free to seek the good of others. And that's what love does. Love seeks the good of others. The Christian understanding of love is to feed. It's to give. The world's understanding of love is to eat. It's to get, to take. Christian love serves. Worldly love does whatever it can to be served with no regard for the good of others. I heard Tim Keller say once, you know Tim Keller is pastor, author in New York City. I heard him say this and it's stuck with me and it's not a direct quote, it's a paraphrase. He said, when you go after another person with no intention to serve them, but only be served by them, only to get what you can from them with no care or concern for their good, you're on your way to hell. That's the road to hell because it's not the way of Christian love. But praise God, that's not the road we're on. We're not on that road. We have been set free from that road. We, we are no longer enslaved to using people to fill our own emptiness. You know why? We're no longer empty. We're filled with the love of God that we've experienced in gospel freedom. God in Christ and by Christ's death on the cross for our sins frees us from guilt and fear and selfishness and he fills our emptiness with his love, his forgiveness, his hope, his help, his grace, which sets us free from being enslaved to use and manipulate people to our own advantage and instead, through a heart of love, serve them. Really count others as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2.3. That's true freedom. Love, Christian love, is the overflow of fullness. It's the overflow of freedom. Being set free from sin slavery, we are now free to love and serve others. And, and notice that love here is not equated with serving. We hear that a lot. Love is what you do. It's, it's what you... It's your serving. But love, we, we, we serve through love, which means serving and love are two different things. Love is an emotion. It's a genuine affection for another that expresses itself in serving, in actively working on behalf of the good of the other. That's how we live life with one another. Christianity is really about community. It is. I mean, the the first thing Paul says when he turns to application in the book of Galatians is serve one another through love. The first thing. I mean, I'd say that's important. Christ saved us and placed us in the church. He placed you in this church so that you can be so committed to one another that your commitment looks like slavery. And that slavery looks like 
moving towards those in need to meet that need. It looks like moving towards others to care and to encourage. It's moving towards others in love and service, not concerned with what's in it for me. It's not preoccupied with whether our service is acknowledged or not. It's not putting parameters on our serving so that we only do it when it's convenient because serving is almost never convenient. It's not only participating in serving when it's doing what I consider to be in the wheelhouse of my giftings. Serving is praying for one another. It's bearing with one another. It's letting love cover a multitude of sins. It's speaking the truth in love. Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians says it's comforting the afflicted, encouraging the weak, helping the neighbor in whatever way one can, bearing with rude manners and impoliteness, putting up with annoyances, treating one's parents with respect, being patient in the home with a cranky wife. Luther said that, not me. And an unmanageable family. I say it's taking the meal to that family. It's babysitting so they can finally have a date night. It's doing the springtime yard work for that single gal. It's graciously pointing out sin patterns and calling to repentance and reminding of gospel goodness. Martin Luther again, because he sums it up so well. Each of us should become a Christ to one another. And as we are Christ to one another, the result is that Christ fills us all and we become a truly Christian community. Isn't that beautiful? Christ to one another. What that means, that's what it means to serve one another through love. That's the command. Now, Paul goes on here to give us a positive and a negative incentive to keep that command. So we're going to look at the positive first. We're going to do it under the heading, the fulfillment. It's verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So now we see it's not a matter of indifference whether or not we fulfill the law of God that is obey his commandments to us. The good news is that love for others, which is an overflow of God's grace to us, and God's grace is never-ending, that love for one another expressed in serving is what fulfills the law. Now, let's ask a question that may have come to your mind as you read it, like it did my mind when I studied. Why does Paul say that the whole law, all of it, is fulfilled when we love our neighbors as ourselves? When Jesus said in Matthew 22 that this is actually the second great commandment that fulfills the whole law. The first great commandment is love the God with all your love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. So how can Paul say this? Well, we know Paul wasn't ignorant of the great commandment. He knew it. But Paul here is interested in talking about our horizontal love for one another. That's his Concern, And so that's the great commandment he quotes, the one related to our horizontal love for one another. He's assuming that our love for one another is the result of an effect of a byproduct of our love for God. He's making that assumption. He's assuming here 
what the Apostle John says outright in 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if we love others in the way that God commands, that's evidence of our love for God, which is why Paul can say that serving one another through love fulfills the whole law. Does that make sense? Now, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, that is not a command to self-love. That, that's a therapeutic interpretation of this text. It's an assumption of self-love. And by self-love, I'm not talking about silly self-esteem or anything like that. I just mean self-interest. We all want to be happy and safe. And we're supposed to let that natural self-interest we're supposed to take that and make it the standard for how we love others. Here's what I mean. To love others, to love another person the way I love myself, is to want that person's happiness as much as I want my own happiness. It's to want that person's hunger satisfied as much as I want my own satisfaction. It's to want that person's comfort as much as I want my own comfort. It's to care about what happens to that person as much as I care about what happens to me. It's to use all my resources for the good of others, just like I use all my resources, time, energy, money, gifting, ability, for my own good. That's law-fulfilling love. Now, think about that. Imagine how loving like that would affect our relationships. Imagine what it would mean for our marriages, for our families, for our friendships, for our small groups. Imagine how loving that way would affect the church. I mean, imagine the joy, the glory, the power. Imagine the appeal, the draw. I mean, how compelling. That's how everyone wants to be loved. And that's how we love when we are, like Luther said, Christ to one another. That's the first incentive, the fulfillment of the entire law. Here's the second incentive to love and serve, which comes in the form of a warning. So that's the heading now, the warning, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So this is what happens when we don't obey the command to serve one another through love. This is the very opposite of loving service on behalf of others. If we're not a church that loves and serves one another, we will destroy the church. It will self-destruct. This is a description of what hungry animals do, right? This is what happens when we're not filled up with gospel grace. When we're not full and satisfied in Jesus, we're hungry. And when we're hungry, we bite and we devour and we consume. And that's graphic language. And did you notice it's all done with the mouth? That leads many Bible commentators to conclude that what Paul has in mind here are things that we do to each other with our mouths like loose speech and harsh talk. 
and sarcasm and gossip and slander. We, we all do it. And we often justify it. And it's the very opposite of what God commands us to do. And we have to get this because we don't want to self-destruct. It, it is not love to talk about a person that we're called to serve in a negative light to another person. It's not loving a person we're called to serve when we cast suspicion on their reputation. There is a reason that we very often refer to sarcasm as biting. It's not serving through love to speak harshly to those to whom we're to be Christ. When was the last time Christ spoke harshly to us? Just a few verses later, verse 19 through 21 of chapter 5, Paul lays out by name some deeds of the flesh. And included in that list are rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Now think about how much of that is caused by what people say. And the tongue really is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness, James 3, 6. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great little book called Life Together, a book about life in the community of the church, made this bold suggestion. Thus, it must be a decisive rule of all Christian community life that each individual is prohibited from talking about another Christian in secret. Bold, right? I often think of Thumper from Bambi. Remember what Thumper says? If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. That's Thumper's paraphrase of Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting sick Talk, that's literally what corrupting means. Sick talk kills churches. It is the way of spiritual suicide. John Calvin commenting on this verse said, how unhappy, how mad it is, how crazy it is that we who are members of the same body should voluntarily conspire together for mutual destruction. It's insane. It's insane to bite and devour and consume when we're called to serve through love. Well, the bar is high for biblical love, isn't it? And the call's hard. This is a hard call. This is a radical call. And you might be sitting there wondering, is this even possible? And I wrestled with that writing this sermon. I asked myself questions like, am I even a Christian? I mean, oh, my flesh fights the will to serve. But you know what? It is possible. If it were not possible, how cruel of God to command it. But here's what we know about God. He is not cruel. And he commands this. So it really is possible to love and serve this way. And here's some really good news. We are not left on our own to somehow muster up the affection, muster up the love for others that leads to good works on their behalf. In fact, we can't do that. But I thought you said it was possible. Well, there is a way. And it's verse 16. So this is the last heading now, the way. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The way to love and serve is by the Spirit. The way to become Christ to one another is by the Spirit of Christ that dwells inside of you, Christian. It's the Spirit who makes all this possible. It's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we can love and serve one another the way God calls us to. We need the Spirit. Paul is going to go on, you know this, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, to list what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that the Spirit bears in us. And what's the very first fruit he mentions? Love. So, what do we need if we look in the mirror of the Word? The Bible's like a mirror, and we need to look into it and take an honest look. What if we do that this morning and see that our love and our serving is lacking? It's not what God requires. What do we need? Well, our first need is repentance. Because it's sin to disobey God's command to serve one another through love. It's sin to bite and devour and consume. So we repent of the sin and we receive the forgiveness that's ours in Christ and then we do all we can do to get more of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask, how do we do that? Well, here comes the connection now to the inward spiritual disciplines that I talked about at the beginning of the message. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says, be filled with the Spirit. Literally, you could translate that, continually be being filled with the Spirit. Awkward, but even more literal in the English. Addressing one another. These are the results of being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, compare that with Colossians three sixteen through 17 Here's what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here's the results. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians right around the same time. But what's the difference? It's right there at the beginning. In Ephesians, Paul tells us, be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians, he tells us, be filled with the Word. Implication, the way to get filled with the Spirit is to get filled with this Word. And that happens when we practice the spiritual discipline of Bible intake. More Bible, more Spirit. More Spirit, more love, more service. So is there any other way? To get the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus told us another way in Luke eleven thirteen. Here's what he says. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We get more of the Spirit by asking for more of the Spirit. 
we pray. Another spiritual discipline. We pray for more of the Holy Spirit like we pray for our daily bread. Word and prayer is the way to more of the Spirit. And it's when we fellowship with Christ in word and prayer that we love and serve like Christ. And is it any wonder? I mean, Jesus himself said, Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Motivated by love, Jesus came as a servant to die and rise again in order to set us free to be slaves of one another. And when we spend time with Him in the Word and in prayer, we experience the fullness of His love and we fall deeper in love with Him and we become like Him and we love like Him and we serve like Him and we become Christ to one another. And that's joy. That's church. That's life in God's community, being means of God's grace to one another. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I just begin by thanking you that this sermon is not a corrective sermon to Providence Community Church because I know from experience and I know from the men who lead this church that this is a church who serves. But there is always room to excel still more. And so I pray that you would take this word now, cause it to land. We prayed at the beginning that it be printed on our minds and on our hearts. Will you do that now? Let this word accomplish all that you ordained for it to accomplish. We just cling to your promise that your word never returns empty. And, and where more serving and more love needs to happen, let it happen so that we can be Christ to one another and so that the world will look in and see and be drawn and be compelled to the example and come and ask for a testimony, the hope and the love that's within us. Let the world know that we're Christians by our love. Do that, Lord, for, for uh, our good, the good of Providence Community Church, the good, for the good of elect sheep who aren't yet part of this fold and for the honor and glory of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.